You are listening to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Allie Fitzgerald Smith. This podcast is brought to you by the Richard Nixon Foundation. We are broadcasting from the Charlie and Ling Zhang studio at the Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. This is episode two in a three-part series examining President Nixon's environmental legacy. This podcast parallels an all-new permanent exhibit called The President and the Planet at the Nixon Library. Joining us again today is Bob Bostock, the author of The President and the Planet exhibit. Bob, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, Ellie. Thanks for having me. Well, Bob, last week we talked about what the environment and the environmentalist movement looked like prior to President Nixon coming into office. Today, let's look at environmental policy. What did the policy look like before President Nixon came into office? Well, before President Nixon took office, it would be hard to say that there really was an overall environmental policy at the federal level. Responsibility for protecting the environment was spread across at least six different federal departments and agencies. At none of those departments and agencies was environmental protection their top mission. So things tended to be very diffuse, uh, did not really get the attention they needed in a consistent focused way, and they really were not particularly effective. One need only look at the condition of the environment when Mr. Nixon took office to see that the federal government was really not up to the job at that point to of protecting the environment and stopping the incredible degradation that was occurring to our water, air, and land and our natural resources. On the statewide level, were certain states taking more aggressive stances than others, or was it largely left up to the federal government, which didn't really have a designated um, source for them? Yeah, some states were taking an early lead. Uh, For instance, in New Jersey, New Jersey uh, founded its Department of Environmental Protection on Earth Day in 1970. And that was only when New Jersey established that department under uh, Governor William Cahill, New Jersey was only the third state in the country to establish a specific state level department for protecting the environment. So there were there were efforts in various states. But uh, the problem with just state level action is, number one, it's not really focused. And the environment, the air and the water don't recognize political boundaries. It's not as if you're polluting in one state into the air that as soon as this, the air crosses into another state, you're going to not have that pollution go there too. So right. this is where a federal effort was really needed. And that is one of the things that I think President Nixon recognized very early on, that while state level action could help in specific places to really address the, the problem across the country required federal action, federal effort, and federal focus. Was the existing structure at the federal level effective and efficient? It really wasn't. I mean, there's a saying that when everybody's responsible, nobody's responsible. Because if no one department or agency had the main responsibility or even the sole responsibility for any any mission, no matter what it is, and it's spread amongst a bunch of different agencies, the effort really never coalesces. You've got everybody... Per- following their own agendas, their own priorities. There are other priorities in those departments that may have um, may be more important to the people who are leading them. We, we saw that after the terrorist attacks of 9-11 when President George W. Bush created the Department of Homeland Security. 
responsibility for that was spread all across the federal government as well as state and local governments. And President Bush and the Congress decided together that you needed one department whose main focus was protecting the homeland from acts of terrorism. Well, the same sort of approach was needed in the early 1970s, late 1960s and early 1970s, because you had these various departments and agencies, you know, they could be duplicating efforts, they could be spending money that wasn't going to be spent effectively. They didn't really have much in the way of enforcement um, authority, and they really didn't have much in the way of research ability either. Spread all across, you know, is just kind of a kind of a band-aid approach to a problem that was incredibly serious. That the state of the environment when President Nixon took office needed a heck of a lot more than a Band-Aid approach. It needed a full court press, if you will, to really tackle the problem, define the problem, understand the problem, and fix the problem. And that could only be done in one agency that was given that mission. And so how did President Nixon propose to solve this issue? Well, he proposed to create the Environmental Protection Agency. And what's interesting about that is President Nixon... His political philosophy was that in most cases, it's better to let the states, the people who are closest to a particular problem, deal with that problem. His new federalism approach, which resulted in things like revenue sharing and other things, were giving power back to the local and state governments away from Washington. But with the EPA, he took a different approach, and it was the appropriate approach that rather than let the states deal with it, rather than let the various agencies of the federal government deal with it. We need to find one place where we can put all of these all of these authorities. And that's why the Environmental Protection Agency over the past 50 years has really been as effective as it has, because they are the main driver between uh, behind all the legislation and regulations designed to make sure that the air is cleaner, the water is purer, and the land is better protected and that the public health is protected because EPA has, they have a huge research capability into understanding what is causing the pollution and what needs to be done to fix it. They have enforcement ability where if someone is breaking the laws or the regulations and polluting um, in violation of those laws and regulations, EPA can uh, find them and and force them to make changes so that they're not doing that any longer. Uh, They have a great public outreach uh, mission, uh, raising people's awareness of what practices you can do in your own life to make a difference in the environment. So all of those things together, the research, the enforcement, the uh, public awareness, and all of the other parts of EPA's mission in one place keeps that agency focused on, on protecting the environment in a way that having it spread across six or more different agencies was never able to accomplish. So it consolidated the existing agencies under one roof with one core mission. It did. It consolidated those, and it also uh, created some new new offices and new missions. Uh, for instance, EPA has an office dedicated to air. They have one dedicated to water. They have one dedicated to mm-hmm. cleaning up polluted sites through Superfund, which was a law that came a little later, but uh, you know was was the result of this whole effort that. President Nixon kicked off in uh, 1969 and 1970. Uh, They have uh, an office that deals with uh, international issues, uh, working with other countries, because again, you know, that pollution doesn't know political boundaries. If something's happening in Canada and the 
winds are coming down from the north, you know, that stuff can be carried over here. And the same thing, I, I live in New Jersey and we've had a, a, a challenge in New Jersey with our air quality from power plants that exist in states to our west. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually a fact in New Jersey that we could shut down the entire economy of New Jersey and take every single car off the road. And in, in some parts of the state, we would still not meet federal air quality standards because of pollution that is coming on the wind from states to uh, our west, Pennsylvania, Ohio, others that um, have not been as aggressive in cleaning up their power plants, for instance, as some other places have, although that situation has gotten much, much better in recent years. But uh, that that is why have, for creating the EPA, putting all this responsibility and authority into one place has made such has made the difference that it's had. I, I don't think we would have seen anywhere near the amount of improvement in the condition of our environment as we have had President Nixon not had the vision and the political will to make this uh, federal agency to bring it into into creation and being. Well, let's talk a little about the political will. You mentioned that this was antithetical to a lot of President Nixon's other actions of returning rights to states and power to states. Um, In a 1972 address, President Nixon said that the environmental issues facing Americans, quote, will not stand still for politics or partisanship, and that the quality of our life on this good land is a cause to unite all Americans. What was the reaction on the Hill to the significant proposal of the creation of the EPA? Well, you know, it's interesting because the two uh, major political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, if you talk to Republicans then and now, a lot of them, most of them, and it's part of the philosophy of the party, say, you know, we don't want too much federal government involved in things. You know, it gets too big. The regulations are onerous and it's going to hurt the economy. And, and, you know, they make those arguments, which are not invalid arguments. They're, they're valid arguments that have to be attended to. On the other side, the Democrats uh, are often portrayed as, you know, not really putting in regulations and laws that will address pollution without having any consideration for what the impact on the economy might be. But the fact of the matter is that the economy and protecting the start that sentence again. But the fact of the matter is promoting prosperity, economic prosperity, and protecting the environment are not mutually exclusive goals. And we've seen that over the past 50 years. We've had huge improvements in the condition of the environment, but we've also had great economic growth. So those tensions are kind of there between the two parties then and now. But the problem is so obvious that uh, the parties were able to come together, and this was part of the genius of how uh, President Nixon and and his administration created this. They were able to bring the parties together with their disparate view of how these things ought to be handled and find a way that both sides could accept and could vote for. And we saw throughout his entire five and a half years, the environmental legislation that was enacted, proposed by the Nixon administration and enacted by the Congress, always passed with huge bipartisan support. And it's important to remember that that occurred at a time when, particularly before 1972, when the country and the Congress were deeply divided over Vietnam um, and other issues. So, but the, but the members of the Congress and, and the president was able to achieve this. He was able to bring Congress to focus on this issue. And even though they might have opposed him on Vietnam and might have opposed him on other things, 
the effectiveness of the Nixon administration's legislative effort to bring these sides together to say, you may not like what we're doing in Vietnam, or you might not like we're doing this, that, or the other thing. This is what we need to do for the environment. So even during a period where there was huge political division, particularly in that first term, the president and his administration were able to bring everybody together to pass these laws with huge bipartisan support. We have it noted in the exhibit that public recognition that pollution was a serious problem grew from one third in 1965 to three fourths in 1970. So I'm curious, was the creation of the EPA publicly popular or was it sort of an issue that wasn't understand broadly by the average American? How was it? I think it was an issue that had kind of uh, ripened, if you will, uh, where the environment is an issue that really has started to to come to a head in the public's consciousness because the evidence of the problems of the environment were too extreme to be able to ignore. So people were were coming to see that all of the uh, post-war, post-World War II economic boom, which did so much to create the broad middle class in, in America and really propel the economy of the United States, was coming with a real cost. And that cost was the pollution of the environment. So starting, as we mentioned in our last episode with Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and her focus on the damage that pesticides and herbicides were doing, all the way to the condition of the air where, you know, city. I was talking to somebody recently uh, who grew up in Southern California. They would have smog days where the air was so bad, kids were told to stay home. And, uh, you know, here in the East, we have snow days when the snow's so bad, you can't get to school. They would have smog days in places in Los Angeles and other major cities. You've seen pictures, or if you Google them, you can see pictures of cities like Pittsburgh and Cleveland and Los Angeles and other industrial cities where um, the taken in the middle of the day where it looks like it's dusk because the quality of the air is so bad. There's so much pollution in it. And we don't have that anymore uh, here in the United States. So public awareness was definitely growing. Um, The first Earth Day occurred in 1970. Uh, It was a grassroots movement, uh, really, that uh, helped, helped propel President Nixon's efforts on behalf of the environment. And uh, but he was already even on the first Earth Day, there, there's this kind of misnomer that it was the Earth Day that kicked these things off. But the Nixon administration had already been working for almost a year and a half on these issues and has, as, as we stated uh, last time, started the effort with the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, uh, on January 1st, 1970, four months before the first Earth Day. But public public awareness was growing. I, I was uh, in elementary school on that first Earth Day, which shows you how long I've been around. And I can remember, you know, everybody in our school, even though we were just kids, uh, not even teenagers yet, um, we went out and, and, you know, a group of us planted flowers in the park near our house. And, and you know, in junior high school, we started in the college, we called it an ecology club, and we'd hold newspaper drives because towns weren't collecting uh, newspapers for recycling. So we'd have newspaper drives and, and uh, can dri- aluminum can drives where, you know, kids would bring in their family's newspapers and their aluminum cans and we would make sure they're recycled. So environmental awareness just grew by leaps and bounds, as you mentioned, that statistic uh, in the late 60s and, and early 1970s and has continued to this day. You know, now uh, nobody thinks it's doing anything special when you're recycling your your paper and your cans and bottles and all the rest of that. Back then, it was uh, kind of a unique 
new thing that uh, people were doing because they were concerned about what their impact was on the environment, even at the individual level. Well, you've mentioned uh, NEPA and Mm -hmm. the creation of the EPA. What are some other um, legislative actions that President Nixon took throughout the Nixon administration? Sure. Uh, Well, as I mentioned earlier, he created NOAA, which has really done tremendous work in uh, improving the uh, quality of our atmosphere and our oceans. Uh, He signed the Clean Air Act. Uh, The Clean Water Act was proposed by the Nixon administration. He actually vetoed that bill because the Congress had larded up the bill with all sorts of pork spending. Um, But it was a bill that came out of the Nixon administration and it ended up passing on an override. And I I don't think he minded too much that they overrode uh, his veto on that because the, the the act became effective. Uh, in 1972, the Marine Mammal Protection Act uh, has made a huge difference in the life of uh, mammals living in our ocean waters. The Endangered Species Act in 1973, uh, he signed into law, again, an administration proposal. The Safe Drinking Water Act uh, was proposed by the Nixon administration in 1974 and was passed by Congress shortly after President Nixon left office and was signed by President Ford. Interestingly, environmental groups, uh, a group of like a dozen or so of them did a survey a few years ago trying to uh, determine which president was the greenest president of all time. And President Theodore Roosevelt came out as number one because of the efforts he made to to, uh, protect all the uh, land out in the West. But President Nixon came in number two. And while I know we always say Nixon's the one, uh, in this case, I think President Nixon, because he was such a strong admirer of Teddy Roosevelt, uh, wouldn't mind coming in, um, getting the silver medal, if you will, to to Teddy Roosevelt. But between the two of them, Teddy Roosevelt starting the concept of conservation of land, which is how they talked about it in the early 20th century. We need to conserve the land that is being developed so that generations to come can understand what the country was like before the Industrial Revolution uh, you know, started to grow and, and take over. So conservation was, was Roosevelt's focus, Teddy Roosevelt's focus. But protection and restoration of the environment was really uh, kicked off by President Nixon and, and his administration. So th- that's a pretty good one-two punch, TR and RN. It's kind of mm-hmm. hard to beat that when it comes to the environment. Can you talk about how these initiatives, environmental initiatives, are highlighted in the new exhibit? Absolutely. Um, as we mentioned in the in the previous episode, this exhibit really is unique among all the presidential libraries because it's an outdoor exhibit that talks about an important policy issue. And it's an exhibit that's put together in a way that really engages the attention uh, of, uh, of the people who are seeing it. And in, in a very real way, it's interactive because you can, you know, you can pet the top of the bald eagle's head. I predict that people for too long, once the exhibits are open to the public again, the top of the sculpture of the bald eagle is going to be uh, very shiny as the patina on the on the bronze is worn off by people petting the head of the of the bald eagle. But I think what's so what sets this exhibit apart from others also is just the fact that it is so accessible because it uses the environment itself and it uses these sculptures and uh, images in a way that really tells the story without having to use a lot of words. And it is one that I was talking when I was out 
in Yorba Linda recently was talking with uh, someone who had brought their young children through the exhibit. And what delighted this uh, young dad was the fact that as they went through, his six-year-old said he, he had lots of questions about why these things were necessary. And, you know, why was the bald eagle almost extinct? And why were these marine mammals threatened? So this exhibit really helps prompt a lot of questions, particularly in younger people who have grown up with environmentalism as just part of mm -hmm. literally and figuratively the air that they breathe. Um, it, it, they find it hard to believe there was a time when we were not as conscious of the importance of protecting the state of the environment. So this exhibit, I think, is going to help people recall that this was not something that was always part of the American consciousness and is something that we have to continue to be conscious about to meet the ongoing threats to the health of our environment and to the public health. And I think that's another important thing to remember that protecting the environment is not only good in and of itself, it also has a huge impact on public health. Uh, if you're not breathing dirty air, your lungs are going to be healthier and you're going to live longer. If you're not living on polluted land, the odds of getting environmentally induced cancer are much lower. Um, in all of those various areas where we had health problems caused by environmental pollution, you've seen the numbers on all of those things go down. So protecting the public health is also very important. And there's one part of the exhibit that we did not talk about previously, and that is the legacy of parks. And that is a program that Mrs. Nixon was really the public face of, where uh, there was land all over the country that was owned by the federal government, but no longer really needed or used. And rather than just have it sit there close to the public, the Nixon administration decided, let's turn this land over to state or county or local governments to use as parks. And over the course of the Legacy of Parks program, which was just an amazing uh, sort of new way of thinking about federal land, uh, thousands, 80,000 acres of federal land were turned into parkland for the uh, use of uh, the public uh, in every state of the union. Uh, there were 642 new parks created across the United States through le the Legacy of Parks program. And Mrs. Nixon particularly enjoyed traveling to various places in various parts of the country to help uh, open these new parks to the public. Uh, you know, whether it was uh, border fields down on the border between uh, San Diego and, and Mexico or the uh, the beach uh, not far from the what was known as the Western White House in San Clemente, where the Nixons uh, had their home. In the uh, 1970s, a beach down there, which was part of Camp Pendleton, was closed to surfers. One of the great surfing beaches along the entire California coast was turned um, over to the public uh, for, for their use for surfing uh, to places in cities and, and rural areas and just all sorts of places, former army bases or army bases that didn't need as much land as they still uh, possessed, all these different places created parks for the enjoyment of the public so people could get out and enjoy uh, the beauty of their surroundings and, and and learn more about nature and just appreciate what uh, what a magnificent uh, natural heritage we have in this country. Well, as we've mentioned at the time of this recording, the President and the Planet exhibit is closed along with all other museum spaces because of COVID-related closures. 
We do hope to welcome you back to the museum soon to explore the new exhibit. For the time being, you can watch the virtual opening of the exhibit at nixonfoundation.org. It's really an incredible program feature, featuring the sitting administrator of the EPA, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger. Um, there's a panel discussion as well as participation from members of the Nixon family. I encourage you to watch the virtual opening ceremony at nixonfoundation.org. In next week's episode, we will be talking more about the lasting legacies of the Nixon administration's environmental accomplishments and the many protections that can be taken for granted today, which are the result of the work of the EPA. Thank you for listening to the Nixon Now podcast. Our guest today was Bob Bostock, the author of The President and the Planet, a new permanent exhibit at the Nixon Library. Please subscribe to the podcast and tune in next week for the third installment in this series.